Welcome, everyone. I'm Jeremy Allaire. I'm co-founder and CEO of Circle. I'm very pleased to be here in London tonight hosting everyone. It's a fabulous venue, hopefully a fabulous conversation. Uh, we have uh, great co-sponsors with 11FS and MetaMask Institutional, a great conversation. This is a special episode of The Money Movement, podcast that we operate and publish. Um, so I, I'm really pleased that everyone could be here. There are a number of Circle team members here. Everyone's already standing up, so it's hard to ask them to stand up. But uh, we've got uh, folks, if you want to raise your hand, if you're from the Circle team, all right, you can hunt those people down if you want to have a conversation about uh, you know, different things that we got going on. Um, but uh, I'm not going to say much because it's going to be a great conversation, but want to welcome uh, Pierre and Johan uh, to join on stage here for this great conversation. Great. So hello everyone. Jeremy and your team, thank you very much for arranging this fantastic event. It is absolutely beautiful. We're going to have an awesome panel discussion this evening. Um, our plan is to have some interesting talking points regarding um, DeFi and the opportunities, challenging, challenges, and what the future holds for widespread adoption across the institutional investment um, ecosystem. Our panelists tonight are the best in the business, um, and uh, I'd like to introduce them very quickly. So Jeremy, who already um, uh, introduced himself, has spent over 25 years in technology and leadership roles and running large-scale global companies. More recently, he's the co-founder and chairman of CEO of Circle, a pioneer of USD coin. In this role, he not only drives a strategic vision uh, of the company, but also gives his perspectives on public policy as well. Please welcome Jeremy. Johan joins us from Consensus Defi. Johan was a fund manager early on and built an investment business in London. He went on to join a robo-advisor firm as a product director, finding, finally finding his own uh, fintech business and joining Consensus this year to lead MetaMask Institutional. So welcome to Johan. And I am your host and moderator, Pierre Legrand. Um, I lead our global ventures business at 11FS. And with our help, clients across uh, banking and other industries to transform them to offer truly digital financial services. So, um, let's tackle a few tough questions. What is the current um, DeFi market structure? Jeremy, if we start with you, that would be great. What, what's the current DeFi market structure? Uh, yeah, I, I guess um, we could probably spend an hour uh, easily on that question. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think one of the common things that, that I think people do when thinking about this is to sort of think about the traditional market structure that exists in financial markets and try and think about what's the equivalent market structure in, in crypto and in, and in DeFi. And I, I think to some degree that's, that's helpful, but I think um, at, at another level though, you know, w what, what I see is, is oftentimes a lot of different roles that exist in market structure just get collapsed. Um, you know, just, if you just think about, um, you know, in the, in the centralized, even the centralized crypto world, you know, an exchange is, is a custodian, it's a settlement environment, it's actually a market. Um, 
and in, and in DeFi, the market structure is quite different. An individual can be a custodian of their own assets and can interact uh, with a market where the market itself uh, is really just software. Um, and so the roles are, are, are quite different. But I think what we're seeing take shape is, uh, you know, you know, basically building blocks that look a lot like the building blocks that we see in traditional finance. And, um, you know, I think from, from our perspective at Circle, we're really just focused on just the basic layer of fiat money and how do you represent fiat money on these new platforms. Um, and then there's, you know, so many other roles in the ecosystem that, that build value around that. But I've actually heard you answer this question, Johan, so I'm going to punt a little bit to you uh, because I think you do a pretty good job of, of breaking it down. Right, well, uh, no pressure then. I'll try my best. So, gosh, how to think about the market structure. I think there's physics and there's chemistry to describe what the market structure is. Yeah. On the uh, chemistry side, I'll start there because it's probably a bit more poetic and it's probably a bit more visionary. I think obviously we've seen you know, a new ecosystem get built that allows for permissionless innovation. And I know the great Mark Andreessen talks about software is eating the world. And I think we can all say that software hasn't really eaten the financial services sector. We have the exact same architecture infrastructure that runs most of trading today. Yep. And I think what we see in DeFi is kind of a rethinking of that architecture from first principles, using blockchain technology, using smart contracts, and decentralized applications. And that's obviously a fundamental change in how value is stored, how it's created, how it's transferred. And that obviously unlocks you know, un, uh, unparalleled opportunity. Great. On the, so that's the, physics, uh, the chemistry side. On the physics side, obviously, we have, you know, um, if you think through the transaction flow process today, you know, we have price discovery, we have execution, uh, we have clearing and margining, uh, we have uh, settlement and then post-trade reconciliation. And what uh, DeFi does, it actually disintermediates all those layers. And obviously, again, that is a, a profound effect because we have now have an internet of money. Got it. Great. That was fantastic. Thank you for that. So the next question is really around how could capital market structures be rebuilt on decentralized infrastructure? Johan, I'll toss it over to you now first. Yeah, so I think um, it probably sort of continues kind of the previous mental model that I painted. Uh, today, we obviously have, as I pointed out, those kind of five layers. And those five layers are very much uh, held by central entities where the majority of trading happens today. And what, uh, what DeFi does is obviously it allows for completely transparent infrastructure, almost instant settlements. And as I pointed out earlier, the fact that we have the creation of value, the storing of value, and the transferring of value being basically free, that obviously unlocks huge potential in terms of you know, what capital markets will look like going forward. Yeah, I, if, I, if I can ladder off that, you know, one of the ideas that we've always been interested in is you know, the, the idea of what I call long-tail capital markets. Yeah. And you know, when, when you think about the internet today, um, the internet's really great at building these multi-sided markets and multi-sided markets that provide you know, price discovery and access at an incredibly long tail. So if you know, the advertising market was obviously completely transformed by creating an extraordinarily efficient set of price discovery, um, 
that allowed really anyone who wanted to reach in a, 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 you know, a, a potential customer in a highly targeted way to do that. The same thing in the sale of goods and services with platforms like Amazon and Alibaba in content marketplaces and communications platforms. The, all of these kind of models basically allow capital formation and capital access to happen at a, just a, a much deeper level than... Uh, than you could imagine. So I, I like to think about capital markets of the future that are built on DeFi as being as, as deep and extensive as e-commerce marketplaces are today with that level of global access for all the participants, whether it's an individual on the you know, saving and investing side or it's uh, an entity, a person, a business that's on the capital formation side. And, and then obviously there's you know, many, many pieces in between, but it's that kind of transformation of capital market function that I think is possible. So how is DeFi superior to um, traditional finance or centralized finance capabilities, or is it really solving a different problem? Jeremy, your thoughts. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like asking, is email better than a fax machine, or is you know, the web you know, better than a magazine? I, I, I mean, I really do think it's, it's the equivalent, right? We're, we're, I think what we're doing is we're building internet scale access to financial products and services with the same reach, with the same efficiency. And as we've seen in these other mediums that the internet has transformed, you see like not 10x improvements, you see 100x improvements. And so, I mean, it speaks a little bit to what we were just talking about, but I think it's, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic difference. And, I, and I, you know, we're obviously in the early stages of, of seeing that play out. I don't know if you want to ladder off that. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the you know, buzz terms we can throw around. We can say things like transparency, interoperability. Um, for me, the fundamental difference is really risk. And obviously, risk is never, you know, uh, risk is transformed, right? We're going from counterparty risk to smart contract risk. But this is actually a fundamental change, and it's actually fundamentally important. Uh, the other thing I would say is that if you look at risk generally, you know, um, insane leverage generally within the financial service sector. If you look at something like Lehman, 44 to 1 leverage ratios, uh, LTCM, 50 to 1. Even this year, we had Archegos, uh, you know, that blew a 23% hole in Discovery and Viacom's market cap over a couple of days and wiped out the earnings for, uh, you know, for Credit Suisse over one quarter. And so if we think about DeFi, we have a system that is self-correcting by its very nature. We have today collateral ratios, right? We have health factors, we have automatic liquidations. We have a system that fundamentally at the moment self-corrects and has complete transparency. And again, as I mentioned, almost near settlement. And so if you compare it to, you know, to finance, I think the you know, the, the example that Jeremy gave is very apt, and I think you can think of, you know, take it a step further and say, well, you know, this is sort of a, the vinyl compared to Spotify. Got it. So, gentlemen, what are the biggest barriers to institutional adoption, and what are some of the compliance challenges that are faced today? Mm. I mean, I, I think, obviously, when you look at DeFi today, there's an extraordinary amount of innovation there's this you know, proliferation of protocols, proliferation of options for um, you know, investors and market participants. There's obviously enormous opportunities to access the underlying crypto markets themselves. There's you know, you know, these growing primitives for generating yield, uh, for borrowing, lending. 
Um, and, and these are getting more and more sophisticated you know, by the week, and it's, it's, it's astounding. But I think most institutional capital, if you look at in the world of institutional capital, is not involved in this really at all. It's, it's very, very limited. I think you know, today it's crypto funds, it's private wealth, it's crypto hedge funds, maybe a little bit of, of traditional hedge funds. But you know, when you think about institutional capital allocation, it's still tiny, tiny. right? So debt and, cap, debt and equity capital markets are $350 trillion. Obviously, uh, crypto capital markets remain quite, quite small. So the natural question is, is why, why is that the case? I mean, there's many, many reasons for it. But I think one of the, one of the biggest is people are still really trying to get their head wrapped around how they deal with risk. And, and risk is what does it mean to trust software to execute a market yeah. function versus an intermediary yeah. and just getting your head wrapped around that. So that's a huge thing. There's obviously fundamental risk that has to do with um, trusting software on a blockchain. Is the blockchain itself secure? How do I know it's secure? Uh, what does it mean to actually have possession and control over an asset? What, you know, what is a cryptographic key? What the, what the hell is this, right? So there's like these very basic building block type things. And then I think there's also, you know, I think very legitimate concerns over the fact that you have capital markets executing with billions of dollars of value and people are finding software bugs and software bugs in a, uh, a smart contract is really different than, say, a software bug in a photo sharing app. So these are, these are huge issues. But I think probably one of the biggest issues that is really limiting is the, the concern that it's not possible to sort of have a compliant interaction with this infrastructure. And for, for many, that means you know, interacting with essentially an anonymous pool of liquidity or an anonymous pool of counterparties um, for many financial institutions, just, uh, that's just a, a hard line because they're regulated and have requirements around anti-money laundering, knowing who they're, who they're interacting with, or at least knowing that they're interacting through venues or intermediaries that are ensuring that, that kind of financial crimes compliance. So I think that's one of the most vexing problems that exist today. And, um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of ideas uh, around how to address that, but I, I don't know what, what you would add on that, Johan. Yeah, I think, so there is the regulatory framework that most institutions have to operate in today. And that means that they have to apply that same regulatory framework to when they step into DeFi. And that is a tough thing to do. And I think it's a common point us in the industry to build the tools, the services, the products that allows them to kind of bridge into DeFi. I know Circle's working on something and, and so is Metamask Institutional. And so, you know, I think again, like, so there's the aspect of regulation today. Here in Europe and Asia, we have the fifth AML directive basically states uh, that if you are a fund manager and you trade with a nefarious counterparty, you can be subject to jail time. And so we know a lot of crypto funds just, just can't touch decentralized exchanges. And so again, there's the framework that institutions have to operate in today that's really important. And then there's also the framework that how is DeFi being viewed by regulators, which I think is still very unclear. So we have a situation where we have tough regulation that corporations have to adhere to, and then this new ecosystem that they have to step into that, again, is, is a bit murky. So I think, again, it's incumbent upon us in the industry to build the tools, the services, and also provide the education for them to bridge into this space. So Jeremy, you had talked a little bit about potential risk. Um, one of the questions around identity um, and DeFi, 
what are some of the possible solutions around you know, understanding you know, who those counterparties may be and understanding what those identities may be within the ecosystem? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, when I first got into uh, crypto and started looking at what crypto primitives and, and, and blockchains could solve for, you know, I, I looked at it as kind of a, you know, essentially the birth of a new kind of operating system layer for the internet. And, you know, these are, these are technologies that, um, you know, have the ability to be applied in a lot of different areas, not just in finance. Finance is, I think, actually one of the more relatively narrow places that blockchain technology can be applied. But early on, I think we thought that, you know, crypto and blockchain could solve for creating money on the internet and everything that's involved in money on the internet. But we also thought that eventually it could be applied to solve identity issues. And I think this is something that has um, attracted a lot of ideas in the past, decentralized identity. Um, how can you have decentralized identity um, work alongside um, you know, blockchain transactions? But I think right now, there's actually, it's, a, it's almost a perfect moment for some of these problems to be solved. I think the, um, some of the fundamental crypto primitives and, uh, have, have evolved to a point. There's building blocks for um, doing things like provable claims about users, um, what we think of as what are attestation methods where you can cryptographically attest uh, to something and uh, you know, a, a wallet or a smart contract could actually you know, say, okay, that attestation is valid. Um, and there are models from the early commercialization of the internet, like um, the way that we all secure how we browse websites, the, uh, you know, what's called uh, secure sockets layer, that actually provide us a little bit of a template for how to think about some of these issues. So uh, my, my own view is that there needs to be um, models for, for doing crypto identity issuance yeah. um, and enabling you know, crypto identities to work across self-hosted wallets, to work across smart contracts. And you know, it, it is going to depend ultimately on you know, institutions like a financial institution, or it could be a government ID or other things, but that, you know, um, organizations that can prove identity can essentially prove that to, to blockchain transactions. So I, th I think there, there are potential solutions to this. Um, I'm actually quite excited about some of the things that are, that are coming on the horizon, but I think it is, it's a problem that has to be solved. We're, we're not gonna see this as a, as a global, capital market as a global financial system if we don't have some mechanism like this uh, in, in place. Great. And uh, Johan, what are some specifics about the UK and the EU, I guess for this audience or even more relative to our discussion today? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think um, you tend to see innovation happen in very particular ecosystems, right? So we have Silicon Valley, we have London as a fintech universe, or ecosystem, and crypto is quite distributed. It has a culture of being, being very distributed. Mm -hmm. I think that I would say, um, particularly the FCA, has been very forward-thinking in encouraging innovation. I think they've been very forward-thinking in sort of, you know, birthing the fintech industry within London. And I think there's huge opportunity for them to kind of take a leadership role um, with regards to crypto and DeFi. As I pointed out, regulation is still quite uncertain in a lot of jurisdictions in the world. And I think it's very important that 
if we have a new financial infrastructure, if we have a new financial technology and incidents of money, I think the regulations can have to change. Um, you know, today, regulators hire lawyers out of university. We have a transparent blockchain where you can verify every single transaction. Mm -hmm. And so the type of profile that I think regulators need to start thinking about hiring are no doubt very technical minded and kind of rethink of how, how they do compliance generally. And so I think, again, like there's an opportunity for the UK to kind of take a leadership role in this because they've been very supportive of fostering innovation, especially around FinTech generally. Great. And Jeremy, your thoughts? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah, so it's very much around what are your views uh, about um, DeFi for this UK audience and UK market and Europeans about as we get more pervasive and more into crypto, what, what are some of the things about our discussion today that make things relevant to this, this group? I mean, the interesting thing about DeFi is it's in, inherently a global mm -hmm. phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a smart contract that is published to a blockchain exists everywhere that the internet exists. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, pretty, that's really profound. Mm -hmm. um, you know, cr blockchains don't have any notion of, of, of nation state boundaries. They exist just as a decentralized infrastructure on the internet. And so, I mean, I think um, while it's interesting to think about innovation happening in a geographic context, I think the whole point of this 100%. is that we're building a, a new global financial system Absolutely. that is inherently open to everyone and where the, the, the market structures and the, the innovations, you know, again, they, they don't know those boundaries. Now that's challenging, um, that's, that challenges preconceived notions about money, it challenges preconceived notions about the way the financial system is structured, how risk is managed. But I think the internet did that in a lot of other places. Yeah. You know, in the early days of the internet, you know, the Italian government you know, was incredibly opposed to the idea that anyone could have a website. In the United States, Congress tried to pass a law that said you had to get an, you know, an FCC license to have a website. Um, the idea of an open internet of information and communications was a really radical idea. But actually, when people started accessing it, they said, this is a, a radically better world. I'm not going to give that up. That, is, that, that represents a change to possibilities for humans and we want to have that. And I have enormous faith that that's what's going to happen with the financial system. And I think that this technology is going to drive it. So that's a long-winded answer to say, while there are regional contexts and there are really important companies solving really significant problems, what I think brings a lot of us to this is the fact that we're building something global. And, and that's really profound. And so, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to work through you know, tax collection and financial crimes and fraud and abuse and all the things that actually every government, most governments, I should say, are concerned about. Um, so th there are, I don't, I don't want to discount that those are, aren't really, really significant things. But I, I, I personally, I like to elevate it up to not just a regional context. And, sure. and if I just riff on that for a second, I think, you know, what do regulators care about? I think fundamentally three things. First and foremost, protecting consumers and investors. Number two, ensuring that you know, there's no money laundering involved in transfers. And then thirdly, making sure that obviously there's no systemic risk. And I would argue that blockchain infrastructure and DeFi you know, is a fundamental better way to address all those three. And so I would also say that you know, regulators should really kind of view this ecosystem as like a, 
a fantastic, like a powerful thing that actually helps their job and makes their job easier. And so I think there's a lot of kind of misnomers on the fact that there's a, an ecosystem with decentralized pools and pseudo-anonymous counterparties doing all sorts of dodgy things. Like really, you know, the, the participants behind this is building a new financial system. And so, again, like, you know, the number of nefarious counterparties, if you actually run the analysis, it's really small compared to what you're seeing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just, again, to ladder off that again, <laughs> is, is, is I think, you know, the, the ultimate promise is something that's more open, more fair, more inclusive, more resilient, more secure, you know, and, and more efficient, right? That's, that's what we're trying to build. And that's a, that represents progress over the financial system of today. It. it is ma very material progress over the financial system today. We can actually build that on this, on this foundation. And I think once regulators understand yeah. that actually you can build something that has greater transparency, greater resilience, greater auditability, uh, greater security, protects private information more fundamentally, um, you know, those are, those are social benefits ultimately. And I, and I think... Um, Everyone will see the light. 100%. <laughs> well, that's great. That's very, very exciting. Um, so one, one question. Yeah, round of applause. <laughs> so, so obviously there's um, interactions on the blockchain, but there's actually assets and data that exists off-chain, if you want to call how, how that's called. Um, is there a way for that to integrate into the decentralized finance um, picture and, and create something that's even smarter and better and add more value? Um, well, I think Perth comes to mind, which is probably not the best start for kind of what you have in mind. Um, I personally think we haven't really seen a real bridge of all-chain data being bridged into on-chain to drive uh, financial primitives. Mm -hmm. um, we might see more of that going forward, um, but I don't know, maybe you have a different view on that, Jeremy. Yeah, I mean, um, right now, most data is not on a blockchain, and, 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 not, and it's not, that's, that's fine. Like, we don't, blockchains aren't necessarily a great place to house data itself. Mm -hmm. And so, what, what I think we're seeing, though, is the ability to have, you know, trusted sources of data that can prove that data to a blockchain. And, and it, it's that kind of melding of, of you know, kind of, external sources of data and, and people feeling that there are trusted sources of that. But once you have that cryptographic proof of trusted data, you can do amazing things with it yeah. uh, with, with underlying crypto primitives. So we're seeing that with market data, obviously, and, and what people can do with that, price feed data. Um, but you know, I, I think a, you know, a lot of the third generation blockchain technologies, you know, like public chain technologies, are, are being designed with the idea that you could actually have, you know, um, internet scale information transmission matched to markets mm -hmm. um, and executed, um, and, and then executing those markets in a decentralized way. I mean, that's, I think, you know, there, there are a number of projects that are really trying to solve that. That's a profound thing yeah. um, as that takes place. So it's, it's also, you know, the oracles and linking external data yeah. to blockchains is also relatively new um, and, and the architectures to do it have, have really come to life materially over the past couple of years, but you can imagine what that looks like, you know, when, when you have a, a, you know, 100x number of sources of data that connect to this infrastructure. So, um, one last question before we open it up for questions. Um, 
How does the advent of some of the more sophisticated lending markets um, really implicate our discussion and what we're talking about here? Can you repeat that? I'm sorry. The, the advent of more sophisticated form of lending markets? Yeah, I think we've obviously seen, uh, you know, protocols like Arc, Alchemy, kind of address the KYC layer that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And this obviously allows institutional capital to step in because they're solving a, a quite a host of those AME, AML concerns that institutions have. Yeah. We're also seeing a lot of innovation. To, uh, generally, I would say that in the space, uh, think like element finance that's kind of like rethinking strips. Uh, we're seeing, you know, um, different types of, uh, you know, fixed rates, uh, lending protocols. We're seeing yield curves being built, which is profound and has a huge opportunity. And so I think we're very much at the start of, you know, uh, fixed income primitives that will solve institutional needs. And I think, again, Alchemy, uh, Arc. Uh, I know some of the folks at Maple Finance are on this office as well, are examples of primitives that are addressing specifically the institutional market. Yeah, I would, uh, it's an area we're super excited about, which is, you know, right now, most, you know, borrowing and lending is essentially leverage for trading. Yep. Um, that's, that's sort of the, the design of a lot of these protocols. But the idea of having a market that can find, you know, suppliers of capital and borrowers of capital and being able to bridge things like external data so you could say, you know, prove your receivables to a blockchain. If you could prove your receivables to a blockchain, then a market could underwrite those receivables in a super, super efficient way and could tokenize it and tranche it and do a lot of things with it. That's just one example. And so even just the ability for, as, as Johan said, known counterparties to face each other in a lending pool and then to be able to make their own risk determinations, underwriting decisions, insurance decisions, allow those things to actually happen on this kind of market infrastructure, I think it can really transform how you know, fixed income works. But it, you know, fundamentally, this is at the end of the day, from, my, from our perspective, is how do people and businesses get capital that they yeah. need for economic activity? If it's all just about the trade, that's one thing. And obviously, the, you know, trading plays a huge role in, in providing that those sources of capital and liquidity. But at the end of the day, how can I, as a business owner, face a market to get capital? How is I, as, as I, as an individual that owns property, borrow capital against that property? Can we bring all those things on chain and replace what banks do um, with this? And I think that's, that's really the vision. I think we're making really significant steps towards that. Um, I think, you know, in the next, you know, say two years from now, we'll see really, really elaborate debt capital market structures that exist entirely on chain uh, and that are global. Um, and, and I think that's what's motivating projects like some of the ones that you've, you've described. I also think this, is a, uh, this particular problem space is one that is wide open for innovation right now. Yeah. I think, you know, just like, you know, three years ago, you know, there were a couple of startup DeFi protocol projects. Now there's, however, a thousand or whatever it is. A lot of them are not serious. 17. But, yeah, 17,000. 17,000, right, okay. That's, that's, that's right. So just, this is a space that's gonna attract really great minds. Yeah. It already is on a, yeah. on a huge scale. So, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm excited about what that looks like and I think there's an opportunity for, to, to build really things that deliver real value to the real economy. I think that's ultimately what, what this is about. Great, does anyone have any questions? I think it was a... A great presentation. Uh, if I can uh, hear your views about where do you think regulation 
for stable coins and stable coins land is going? Do you think it's going to be banking regulations, securities regulations? Where do you think this is going? Both of you, thank you. Sure, I have a lot to say about that. <laughs> um, I mean, look, when regulated stable coins emerged a few years ago, there, there were a limited number of these projects. And in the United States, you know, the, you know, m most of the, of the most widely used um, asset-backed stablecoins are dollar-based. And uh, at least those that sought out to issue them under a regulatory framework did that under a clear set of banking and payments law in the United States. Yeah. And that's how they operate today. That's how they've been operating for the last three years. There's, you know, I think here in Europe, it would be an e-money equivalent. It's a stored value, electronic money transmission payments law. And the issuers, like Circle, like Paxos, and others, operate these under, under those frameworks. Now, three years ago, these were tiny. Um, today, USDC is about 32.5 billion in circulation, growing 1,000% a year. Um, and I think um, the prospect of that level of growth uh, and that level of growth happening um, in the coming years, uh, this technology reaching a tipping point where third generation blockchains, layer two scaling technologies, uh, making it you know, quite likely that you'll be able to transact these very low cost at internet scale. Um, I think that's, that's brought a lot of attention. And I think that's well-deserved attention because I think what regulators are looking at is really two things. One is this could become global scale systemically important just in a matter of a few years. And that's, that's important. And if you talk to banking regulators who look over payment systems, such as the, the, the Bank of England here, and in other jurisdictions it's handled differently, um, you know, they're looking at fundamental security, fundamental you know, uh, risk management, thinking about the actual integrity of the reserves, how are those managed, what does that look like when it's you know, half a trillion dollars, and, and how to think about that. So I think it's, it's bringing a lot of attention. And then clearly, there are tokens that are really involved in a lot of trading and investing behind the scenes. And I think there's questions about those as to whether those are, you know, a, a banking and payments activity or, or something else. There's a lot to be resolved there. So there's a, a huge effort globally on this topic. Um, and that effort actually started years ago. And I think it's now because of the, many of the things that I just talked about, it's now actually coming to the forefront. So we're gonna see, for example, in the next few weeks, very specific you know, kind of guidance that comes out of the US Federal Reserve, the US Treasury Department, and a broader set of, of participants that are looking at how to regulate this. You know, I think it's very likely mm -hmm. that um, asset-backed stablecoins that are operating a, 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 a form of payment system and are holding reserves against that payment system are going to be regulated under you know, federal banking supervision or national banking supervision in different jurisdictions around the world. I think that's very likely. I think there may be other products that are you know, more involved on the investing side that, that might be regulated as securities. So I think it has to do with fundamental design principles. But I, you know, 
I think that's kind of what we're seeing. Um, and a lot of this is, there's a lot to work out in that. It's not, this isn't just a straightforward thing. You say, this is what it is, or this is what it isn't. You know, uh, I think the novelty of a global scale stablecoin issuer is a, is a new thing. And there's no, as I like to say, there's no exam manual at the US Treasury Department for how to examine and supervise that activity. There's a lot of new things that have to do with the security and the soundness and settlement finality and other things that are specific to public chains and, and how they operate. So there's a lot of work that has to be done collaboratively with governments as this, as this grows into something that is used by you know, billions of people. Other questions? I'm very concerned with uh, or interested to know what the, what the speakers will say about the, the issues surrounding uh, decentralized blockchains, etc., and the challenges we face today with those governments and banks who want to introduce central bank digital currency, and that's all in line with the Great Reset Agenda, and if people haven't learnt about that, please look into that because it's really bad. And I would just like to know what they've got to say about that. Because to me, the decentralized networks is the way forward. And central bank digital currency is a really bad thing. <laughs> is that a question or a statement? <laughs> yeah. uh, I'll, I'll let you take that one. <laughs> You'd like me to take that. I mean, th th there's a lot to say on this topic. Um, I think that... Um, if, 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 you, if you put yourself in the shoes of a central banker, which I know everyone in crypto loves to do, um, I think th th there's a couple of, I think, really important perspectives. The, the, the first is that there is some form of government liability that a person can have that is not a loan to a financial institution. So first principles, notes and coins, as an example, are a liability of the government, and you can have that, and it is not a liability, you are not loaning it to a bank. Almost all money we have today is a loan to a bank. You're saying, I'm going to give you my base money, the government liability money, and I'm gonna give it to you to go and effectively lend and invest on my behalf, but it's really a liability there. And I think that from a public good perspective, central banks don't wanna see a world where uh, there is no public option on money. So I think that's from a central banker's perspective, the, the, the concern is that if all money becomes private liabilities, uh, then in times of great crisis, uh, there is no ability for an individual to, um, you know, to, to, to hold an, you know, a straight obligation of the state. Now, you could argue, well, governments abuse that, and it gets inflated, and the government money is no good anyway. Um, but in many parts of, of the world, uh, monetary policy is looking at purchasing power parity, and it's looking at uh, inflation rates, and it's always trying to, you know, adjust uh, the, the amount of money in circulation to kind of keep that somewhat in line. It's a hard thing to do. That's what, you know, I think some of the more advanced central banks do reasonably well. Um, 
again, you can argue about it, um, but uh, uh, there are many central banks that do it awfully, and, and we can name those a hundred times over. But I think that that's one valid issue, is, is should there be a form of crypto money that is a straight obligation of the government, that is not just a private sector obligation? Um, and so that's a reasonable question. And, and I, I think over the very long run, I think there probably should be. Yeah. Now, the other point on this is that um, the, the innovation in terms of how private money works and how the you know, open blockchain money works and programmable money works and all of the things that you could do with that is happening at an incredible pace. And the technology revolution that that represents and, and how that will grow is happening at an incredible pace. And I think it's also government's obligation to allow that to flourish because it's gonna deliver incredible benefits to society. And so as long as it's well managed from a risk perspective and it can't blow up on people in a horrible way, that needs to be given a structure so it can really thrive and grow. And then you'll have competition amongst public money and private money as you always have. Yeah. And that is today, we all use privately issued money every day. Like that is pretty much what we use. We don't use a lot of public sector money. Um, but so that, that, that competition needs to exist. I think certainly in the West, which is a history of open, liberal, market-based, private sector-based e economies, that's a first principle. And so I think that that needs to be upheld and I think it's a huge opportunity for Western governments to get out in front of that right now. It's a huge opportunity. The path of uh, state-controlled money with total observation of society is a very scary path. Nationalized money entirely is a very scary path. And so I don't think we want to have a strategy of emulating China. I think the strategy ought to be one of uh, you know, embracing open internet innovation, open source innovation, private sector innovation, all you know, the, the benefits of, of what we're seeing flourish right now, that's a huge opportunity and should be embraced. But I don't think it has to be that uh, th there's no possibility of, 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 of public sector crypto money. I think there can be, and I think it'll play a role in the future. So yeah, look, I, um, what's really clear from what you guys were saying is like, yeah, I can completely understand why institutions want to invest in crypto and why they want to hold digital assets because like the returns are really great and there's a lot of innovation and if you believe in the space. Um, what I'm not yet sure about is you know, what you were talking about, Jeremy, about how, um, where we evolve, how we bring on uh, different forms of debt, how we integrate real world debt with DeFi. Like, what I'm not yet sure is, you know, what's the real value proposition for that? Like, if I'm a real estate developer, why do I care about DeFi? Like, why do I want a loan from DeFi when I can get it from HSBC at 2%? Like, if I'm a small business owner, why do I want to get a loan from DeFi when I can get it from a bank at a pretty low rate? Um, that's what, just love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, what a great question. So... I think there's so many answers to ways to approach, approach your question. One thing is that there's human flaw in the system today. And I'll use the example with judges sentencing people around lunchtime, which is then to find us that there's a higher sentence rate when the judge has eaten whether, whether they have not eaten. That same bias is present in the banking system today. And so yes, it's 
driven by a system that analyzes collateral, analyzes your assets and spits out a number. Of course that happens. But there's also a human factor in the system today and there's also a discrimination factor as well, to say quite bluntly. And so what DeFi does is it takes all of that and writes smart contracts, uh, writes all that through smart contracts. And so not just do we have a more transparent system, but we have a more fair system. Now, I mean, that's obvious. I think that's kind of where your question starts at. You talked about the idea of like, you know, getting a business loan or getting, you know, a, a housing loan. What you tend to find in DeFi, and obviously we're very much at the start of the ecosystem. We're at the, the nascent beginning of the ecosystem. And yes, we are seeing adoption cycles being driven by the DeFi degens, and then after that, the crypto funds, and as Jeremy pointed out, now the hedge funds. But I think we're also starting to see real use cases, you know, people buying assets that then allows them to acquire a house because they've had this asset grow in value. And so what you have here is permissionless innovation, opening up infinite number of use cases. And so what this means is that your, uh, you know, your estate developer or your average person getting a mortgage can potentially get a bigger mortgage. There's this case in Australia where a person got a mortgage that paid itself off and they could buy a house by using kind of these Lego money blocks that we're talking about. And so we're starting to see far more real use cases uh, you know, in DeFi. And so I, yes, I, I guess for the average person, if you talk to my mom or my dad and you say to them, please go, you know, figure out how to get a, you know, a mortgage or like you know, a small business loan, they wouldn't even know what DeFi is or where to start looking. But we're starting to see kind of slowly but surely more adoption. I think it's really incumbent upon us in this industry to build the sort of product and services where average people can cross into the space. And I can promise you within consensus and the MetaMask team and MetaMask Social, we think very, very, very deeply about how do we bring the next 7 billion people into the space. Because otherwise, it is just a cool ecosystem where a bunch of people trade with each other and we tokenize things and we all have NFTs. And the dream of this, like if it ends there, I think will be like terribly sad. And so it's very important that we think about, and this I think, you know, a lot of what 11FS got right, which is like, you know, think about UX, think about UI, you know, think about the sort of things where you can help steer people make the right decisions. And so again, we're, we're, DeFi started in 2018, but we're only really about 12 months into, you know, this explosion. And I think, you know, those beautiful real use cases that we hear all the time from people that could afford a house for the first time, you know, or um, you know, sent their kids to university because of the investments they made. Like we hear a lot of those cases. I think we're going to start hearing way more of those going forward. I, I would add, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to, to see clearly, but I think when you have um, cryptographically provable identity and you have the ability to have cryptographically provable claims about an entity or an individual, and you have off-chain data that can be proved online, and, and you think about that applied globally, then you, you get into a world where these market structures can underwrite risk really, really differently than the current way that risk is underwritten. It, the risk could be underwritten really by anyone in the world in that scenario. So a landowner in some distant location may be able to find a way to kind of prove the yield of their land, theoretically. And if they could prove that on chain, then a global marketplace of underwriting can happen and they could access credit and they could tokenize yield, their own yield, quite literally, and they can access that credit. 
And it's that, what I talk about sort of long tail capital markets, that's only possible in an infrastructure like this. And so I, I think it does get down to the household level. It does get down to the small business level. Just like a small business owner who was trying to find customers, they had limited options for how to do that 20 years ago. It was sort of like who was in their local newspaper, who was down the street. They put something on a, you know, up on a post uh, or you know, they'd buy direct mail and send mail to people. Um, but now you can target exactly who you want from anywhere in the world to anywhere in the world, and you can efficiently find customers. And that's because of the ability to have enormous amounts of underwriting data, in a sense, uh, in the advertising ecosystem is one example. So I think you know, there's some building blocks that are needed. We're talking about some of those here. As those building blocks come into place, then I, I think it really starts to widen the aperture for who can really benefit from this. Right now, you look at it, it looks like a bunch, of punter, a bunch of punters trading and making money and this kind of thing, and that's real. That's a real value, the, the yields and the investment and the projects that are getting funded and how they're growing. I think that's real, um, but you have to zoom out a little bit to kind of see what these building blocks ultimately are going to allow for. My question is for Jeremy. Um, the USDC use case is, grew from 400,000 wallets in 2022 to 1 million wallets that hold USDC in 2021. And 65% of the wallets holding USDC are from emerging markets. Right? When you look at the, the chain analysis of the crypto adoption across the world, the only United States makes the developed country where the adoptions are coming from. Now, when I look into the circle in terms of board of directors, your teams, and people that actually run Circle, what is a conscious effort? Because Circle is growing really fast in emerging market, and there is no one on your team today that is understanding that market, or is trying to invest or trying to support wallets and, and dApps that utilize the USDC as a form of payment. Because the real use case for the stablecoin are those countries who are classified in traditional finance today as non-convertible currencies. And those are the, where those stable coins are being used today. So as a CEO of, of Circle, what conscious effort is Circle taking to understand that market and to begin to invest into the market where the adoption of USDC will come from? And we already see that from Paxos as we speak today. It's a great question. I mean, I think um, one of the things that's obviously really powerful about digital currency is the global reach. And I think, you know, our, our vision has been how do you create a, an open format for dollars and an open protocol for dollar settlement that works across the internet. And, you know, what's amazing is that you know, tens of thousands of companies can implement that, they never need to talk to us, right? Um, a software wallet can implement support for USDC. An exchange, a brokerage, um, a, a protocol, all these things can implement support for that. And I think it's, you know, that's, that's part of the, the power of, of an open internet model. Um, I think um, in terms of our own focus, we're very interested in the global growth. We're very aware of that global growth. 
I think for us to directly get involved in a market, there's a big undertaking, right? We need to do things the right way. If we're going to be directly in a market, we need to ensure that we're meeting the compliance requirements, the registration requirements, the doing business requirements for us to directly get involved in a market. But I think we support a, a major ecosystem. I think as some people know, you know, we're in the process of becoming a publicly listed company. Uh, we are, uh, you know, we've raised considerable capital. We will, you know, uh, you know I, I think have raised this considerable amount of capital in the coming months. And we've made it very clear that global expansion is a really critical uh, priority for us. And I think that's not just in developed markets. I think that's a huge opportunity in emerging markets and in other parts of the world. So we see that very clearly. But if, if Circle itself is going to directly get, you know, develop a presence in a market, we need to do it the right and compliant way. Um, but I think at the same time, as I mentioned, just the use of this technology is inherently global, and I think you know, we're, we're, we're very encouraged by that. Um, I'm taking my hat off as crypto am. I wanted to encourage the guy behind you just ask the question. Um, I worked three years so far on a project called World Mobile. Uh, we're um, essentially addressing one of the biggest issues that we all face, which is that half the world's population isn't even connected. The digital divide has been exposed Quiet, please. Thank you. Jimmy's talking. Um, the digital divide has been exposed by the pandemic massively. And I'm just really just saying, encouraging you guys, it's fine. We all can play our role and we can all help. But in order to do it, we need to get the rest of the world actually uh, online. And, and, and it should be a human right. It should be a human right to be digitally connected. And actually, you know, as you said, digital identity is absolutely fundamental to that. So I applaud you all, and thank you very much for having me as well. Thank you. Thank you. I agree. Thanks very much uh, for tonight. It was very interesting. Um, what I wanted to ask you was, what are the biggest fears, do you think, from large institutions and even governments about crypto? Obviously, in this room, we can all... Uh, see the benefits. Um, but yeah, what do you think are the largest fears? Yeah, I think as a society and as regulators, we tend to see very short-term decisions being made at the expense of long-term decisions. And I think in financial services sector, we often see the fear around money laundering uh, surpassing the bigger fear of systemic risk. And I think, you know, 2008 is a fantastic example of that. The European banking crisis is a good example of that. And I think in crypto, there's a very strong focus on AML, KYC. And I think those things are, are fundamentally important. We have to pay attention to them. But I actually think, as we pointed out earlier, there's a huge opportunity here around systemic risk that I don't think regulators are paying attention to. And so um, right now, the fear is a lot around, like, are there nefarious counterparties doing nefarious things on blockchain technology? And I think a lot of the focus, if I talk to institutions, is about figuring that out, making sure they're not trading with the nefarious counterparty, and also reporting to regulators in a way that's very clear that they have some sort of a risk framework in place, both on a pre-trade and post-trade compliance basis, of how do they think about AML and KYC and KYT risk generally. So I would say that's the fear that I constantly see. And when we kind of engage with the regulators, that's sort of top of mind. You know, who are the nefarious counterparties? Is anti-money laundering taking place? 
again, I would highlight that I think, you know, from a risk management and from a regulatory perspective, yes, we care about those things. We care very deeply about those things. But actually, it's the biggest systemic risk that I think blockchain has the opportunity to address. Yeah, I would, I would, I would say um, it depends on which parts of governments you're talking about and which governments specifically you're talking about. I think, um, I, I think there's a general fear that um, you know this technology could uh, you know get to a huge scale, a systemic scale, and just introduce a, a level of risk that's just completely unanticipated. And, you know, I think there's a little bit of, you know, Web 2.0 that's kind of biting us in the ass right now mm -hmm. on that front, right? Which is, wow, that was really cool. You could share your photos with your friends. And then all of a sudden, you're dealing with societal systemic risk issues that are affecting elections, violence, uh, a lot of other, you know, v very awful things. And that kind of, that, that escaped uh, the, the, the view of, of, of governments. And I think there's a fear that that's information and communications. What if that happened in the realm of the economic system and how profound that could be? But that's actually the point. Yeah. <laughs> that is actually the point is that yes. we do want to see not a centralized platform that's you know, controlling all of the financial system in the world, a Facebook of money, as it were. We don't want to see that. And governments are having a huge negative reaction to that very specifically. Um, but I think we do want to see a decentralized internet that has greater control that's put in the hands of users, that has more resiliency, more safety, more security, more privacy, more efficiency, more access, and, and, and it transforms the unit economics of, of, of banking and, and finance and, and provides access. Like, that is, a, uh, I think, a really powerful thing that we do want, but it's also terrifying. It's terrifying. Um, and so, yeah, that's, what, that's the project that all of us have here is, is working through that uh, in the coming years. And just to add to that, I think, you know, in what, May, June this year, we saw crypto markets fall up to 50%. We didn't see regulators have to step in we didn't see the Fed open its discount window. We didn't see any bailouts. It just all worked. And so, yes, we can say this is still a small, nascent market. But if you imagine that the same thing had to happen in debt markets or equity markets, you know, where we would be today. And so I think, you know, this litmus test that we've been seeing over, you know, kind of down market cycles and crypto winters, I think this is time when, when like, builders in the space really step in and keep building. And I think, you know, I think the conclusion and something we see a lot of is for years we've been talking about institutions arriving and I think we're, we're finally there. We're actually starting to see that happen. And so I think it's a, it's a really exciting time in crypto. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. So outside of the regulatory piece about mass adoption, what would you say is the biggest obstacle for mass adoption of DeFi? Because in my own opinion, I feel like it's a very steep learning curve for someone that knows nothing about crypto. And moving forward, if we truly want mass adoption, in my opinion, some aspects need to be simplified, but I'm keen to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think, um, you know, today it's very complex to create a wallet, connect to your protocol, confirm a transaction, and understand what has happened. Uh, you know, the way to think about this is that 
you know, beginning of the internet, you had very similar sort of, you know, people playing around with it in their basements and trying to figure out like what the internet would look like generally. And today everyone uses it, right? Like we don't necessarily know what happens when you type something into a browser, it just works. A lot of us don't know how to rack a server or like, you know, exactly what happens with like, you know, routing, but we just, we all use the internet. And I think DeFi has that opportunity. Now what needs to happen, I personally feel, is kind of the next evolution of where we are today, which is like, okay, the infrastructure's being built. And I think the next wave is really about how do we think deeply about user needs, user experience, user interface. And this is something we can learn a lot from, from FinTech 2.0. FinTech 2.08 didn't really change the infrastructure of the financial system, but it built fantastic user experiences and businesses. And so at De the stage that DeFi is in is we're building fundamentally new architecture that can, as we've pointed out tonight, be the internet of money. And I think the next ev evolution of that is, okay, we'll need to think about our users now. Uh, and so, you know, and this is something as simple as seed phrases, right? And so what happens if you lose those seed phrases? And like, how do you interact with protocols generally I was with my team the other day, we were looking at protocol, and my technical lead said it looks like we we're hacking to the CIA, because just like looking at the interface, like what is this? And so if I'd asked my grandmother or my mother or my sister to look at that and sort of, you know, lend or borrow, it's a very intimidating thing to ask them to do. And so again, like this is something that we in the industry need to think very deeply about. Like at the moment, 140 million unique wallet addresses within Ethereum. We want to get that to 7 billion. Right, so we need to get back to work after this and like, keep building. So Jeremy, last word for you on that. Anything you want to tell? Yeah, I mean, I, I get, I've been asked this question in different ways for like eight years. Um, so it's sort of the same question. Um, but, you know, I think there's sort of this triumvirate of regulatory clarity so that mainstream, not just institutional investors, but corporations, households, feel like they understand that this is something that they can interact with um, that is, is, a, is an infrastructure that there's some, some degree of, 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 of regulation around infrastructure and many, many layers of infrastructure we could talk about, but at the core, it's sort of scalable blockchain infrastructure that can handle hundreds of millions to billions of users and user experience, which is this focus on UX and, and delightful UX. And, and these can actually all work together. And if you get those things working together, that's how this gets to billions of people. I'm very confident that we're gonna see that happen in the next two to three years. So I, I think that's my high level view. Great, we're just about time. So thank you so much for those fantastic questions. We really appreciate it. And a round of applause for our panelists. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.